Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church, even though we're coming to you virtually this morning. Uh, Let's begin by praying together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for rescuing us from our certain death in the lake of fire through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for your complete grace. We could never have done anything about our situation of being sinners if it wasn't for your intervention in human history with your son's death and resurrection. We thank you also, Father, that you have provided for us the complete canon of 66 books in the Bible. We thank you, Father, that we can draw life from that, especially through the ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, who dwells in our hearts. Father, this morning, once again, we want to pray for all the members of our congregation, for the difficulties and battles that they have already before the virus, and, and that layered on top of it, Father, we know that it's caused a lot of loneliness, it's caused a lot of confusion, and so we just pray, Father, not only for their physical health, but also for their mental and spiritual health as well. And of course, we pray for all those who are affected by the virus, um, both here and around the world. And we just ask the Holy Spirit, Father, that he would... Uh, guide and direct us into our study of your word this morning. We thank you for him as well, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Alrighty, every month we sponsor a different missionary organization. This month we've been sponsoring Village Ministries International. We hope that you're generous with your prayers and finances with this organization. Their website is on the slide right now www.villageministries.org. I just want to let you know what they would like you to pray for today. Um, They would ask that we pray for the health and safety of their missionaries, for families and individuals who have lost jobs and income, for local churches like ours and ministries as they seek to be salt and light during this time of great need, and also for the guidance and provision of the Lord for VMI's operations in the coming weeks and months. All righty. I also, oh, by the way, it's a little emotional actually to be behind this pulpit for the first time. And that reminds me too that I'm so grateful for all of you, for all your prayers and concern and cards. And um, I'm very excited this morning to let you know that we are going to be opening back up next Sunday, May 31st, for our congregation. That's very exciting. I do want to put everybody at ease that we have thought through the COVID-19 precautions that we're going to do. I'm going to just briefly talk about that now. I want to ask that anybody who is sick, please stay home. If you're unable to attend or if you're in a higher risk category due to age or predisposed health conditions, or if you're just uncomfortable coming yet, just remember that as we are today, we have an online service. We have a live broadcast every Sunday. So please take Take advantage of that if there's any concern at all in those areas. We're going to continue, of course, we've been doing Bible study on Thursdays, and we're going to continue to keep that one online. The reason is, is that when we gather in the family room, we're at pretty close quarters, and there's a lot of interaction, and we don't want that to um, be a potential source of infection. So for now, we're going to continue to have the Thursday evening Bible studies online. That could change, but for now, that's what we're going to do. If you have any question about whether you're sick or not, the thing to do is to take your temperature. Apparently, I don't know the exact statistic, but something like a very high percentage, maybe in the 90s, of people who have it um, have symptoms. That's one of the symptoms, the main symptoms. So, you know, and also parents, if you're going to have your children come, do the same thing. Take their temperature, please. We will be, having, we will be wearing masks. I won't be um, because I'll be more than six feet away from everybody. 
but we would ask that you would um, wear a mask. We're also, that we will be practicing social distancing, the six-foot rule. We'll arrange things here. We'll ask you to skip a row. Um, families can stay together. Other than that, you want to skip a chair as well. So I think you understand that by now. That's in, that's in practice. It's about everywhere people are gathered together. All righty. Just remember, too, no handshakes, no hugs, no kisses. I know it's natural to want to do that with the family, but for now, we're going to just not do that. Um, I also would ask that uh, you keep a healthy distance away from me because of my medical condition. Um, and what we're going to do is, if you have a question at the, at the service, well, I'm going to be in the back of this platform, sitting down, and you're going to come up and be a, a few feet away from even the platform. Uh, as, and I don't really encourage that yet, but if there's something you have to ask me about, that's how we're going to do it. Or if you want to say hi and that sort of thing. Um, I do have enforcers, so be careful if you try to violate that rule. <laughs> um, and also, uh, I have to tell you this, but uh, for, the, for, the, for the time being, we're not going to have coffee or food. The reason is, is that, again, that's another situation where we have to do social distancing, and that's really hard to do. Um, so and also, you know, we're going to be making so many adjustments already that we're really not ready to police that, so to speak. So we, for the time being, we're not going to have coffee or food. Children can sit with their parents. Families should sit together. We won't be having um, uh, Sunday school right away, mostly because you know, it's really difficult to have kids honor the six-foot rule. So for the time being, we're not going to do that. Um, if you, in the mother's room, uh, unfortunately, it's only one family that can be there. Okay. Um, so again, though we're online, and you can have a child in here. And uh, so that, hopefully that will work pretty well. We'll also have hand sanitizer, extra mask if you need one. Apparently washing your hands is one of the best things we can do to prevent the spread of COVID-19. Um, and we may have updates, so please check the website um, if you can remember, in case we have any additional things or changes that we need to let you know about. All right, next Sunday um, is again when we start up again here, face-to-face. Two weeks from now is the Lord's Supper, first Sunday in June. We'll be figuring out what proper precautions we're going to take for that as well. All right, let's begin the message today. Its title comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and the title is, By the Grace of God. By the grace of God. Please turn now to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 8. 1 Corinthians 15, 8, and we'll begin. Last week, we saw the presentation of the gospel. The gospel, of course, is that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried, then was raised on the third day, and he appeared to many witnesses. Okay. When Paul gives the gospel this time in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 to 8, his clear emphasis is on the resurrection of Christ. Now, why would that be? Well, because he's, the subject overall, remember, of chapter 15 is the bodily resurrection of the dead. Okay, all believers. In fact, we also know from the Gospels and from Daniel and other places that everybody will be resurrected from the dead. Some to a resurrection of life, eternal life. Some to a resurrection of wrath, which would be the lake of fire. But we're focused, Paul focused on the Christians now. There will be a bodily resurrection of the dead. That's the main point he wants to give, and we'll see in a little while, that that's been a controversy with the Corinthians. So we'll see what that's all about. 
Now, the, his logic, and it's really a fail-safe logic, is, you know, if Christ is risen from the dead, then there'll be a bodily resurrection of the church because we are permanently joined to Christ. We're members of his body. If his body was raised from the dead, so will ours. We'll be resurrected in a body of life, eternal life like his. But today we're in 1 Corinthians 15. We've moved on, verses 8 through 11. In this portion today, Paul's going to briefly take up another subject. In verse 8, he presents himself as the final witness to the resurrected Christ. And he was. He was the final witness to the resurrected Christ. Okay? Um, after that, people, people had the ministry of the Holy Spirit, prayer, and so forth. But Paul was the last one to have a great face-to-face um, meeting, if you want to put it that way, with the Lord Jesus Christ. Happened more than once, but he was the last one. And uh, by the way, when he talks about himself as the final witness, we'll see this in a moment, he uses a really graphic word to describe himself in this regard. You can't see it in the translation that's in the New American Standard, for example, but I'm going to tell you what the word really means in a moment. Now, despite the fact that he calls himself that word in connection with being an apostle, and he explains that he's not fit to be called an apostle, and he explains why, And as we'll see today, the reason why is that he actually persecuted the church of God. How could anyone be qualified to be an apostle whose track record is persecuting the church, the body of Christ? In fact, when Jesus appears to him, he's going to say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? That's how serious what he was doing um, was in the eyes of the Lord. Nevertheless, here he was, and he wrote to the first for the Corinthians, he's an apostle. He's appointed to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But how could that be? How could a man go from being the worst, the worst persecutor of Christians one day, and he was, we're going to see this in a minute, how can that be that one day he's the worst persecutor of Christians that you can imagine, and then the very next day he becomes the most passionate preacher of the gospel of Christ? Well, you think about that transformation. Worst persecutor of the church, most passionate preacher of the gospel of Christ in, in, in a very brief period of time. Okay. How can that be? There's only one explanation, and that's the grace of God. Amazing, miraculous, precious grace of God. Now, it happened to Paul in a spectacular way. It happens to all of us. We're all beneficiaries of the amazing, miraculous, precious grace of God. We all know people in our lives who are, were, were in a place of despair, and yet they, they, they understood, finally, the meaning of the gospel. And then they were ready to see the grace of God, and, and, and then we watch as time passes and we see them change. Okay, how? Not by anything about them, but only by the grace of God. Only Christ in them. Only the fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in their heart. All those are grace gifts, you know. Our salvation is a grace gift. The fact that Christ is in us, how could we ever deserve that? The fact that the Holy Spirit dwells in our hearts, all gifts by the grace of God. And as we're going to see, when God gives gifts, he has a purpose in mind. It's not just willy-nilly, okay? He's not saying, well, you know, I'm just going to give people things. He's he's got a purpose, and we're going to see that. It's very important not to forget about that. Again, let's begin now our verse-by-verse consideration of the passage. All right, 1 Corinthians 15, 8. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. That's a nice way of saying it. One untimely born. You know what the word really means? 
The Greek word translated one untimely born means a miscarriage or an abortion. He's saying he's a miscarriage. He's an abortion. Now, obviously, physically he wasn't because he wouldn't have been there. So what is he talking about? He's talking about his past life and, and then looking about his position before he came to Christ. When the apostles had already lived with them, you know, seen him resurrected, he's saying, I'm the miscarriage among the apostles. I'm the one that doesn't fit in. Okay, naturally speaking. Why? Because he persecuted the church of God. Okay, which is the worst thing you can think of. We're the body of Christ. We're the fullness of Christ in this world. Anybody who's persecuting the church of Christ is answerable to Christ. You know, and we saw in chapter 3 that he said, if anyone tries to destroy the temple, you will be destroyed. So by all rights, Paul should have been destroyed. He should have been wiped out. But he wasn't. He's, but he is the miscarriage among the apostles. Now, why does he use that word for himself? Well, it's a graphic word, and it gets the point across. And it's going to be the way that he brings in this new subject that he's going to briefly talk about. And again, repetition, that subject is the grace of God. By looking at him as worst, as literally a miscarriage, an abortion, we use that expression sometimes for a total failure. By seeing that first, then we'll appreciate the power of the grace of God when we see what he became. And to remember that it's not unique to him, that we are also recipients of the grace of God. It's not where we come from. It's not the sins that so easily beset us, but rather it's the transformation. It's the power of God. It's the fact that we're saved anyway. It's the fact that we're graced out anyway. No, no merit to us at all. In fact, just the opposite. Enemies of God. Enemies of Christ. But let's pay careful attention to how he brings in this new subject, the grace of God. Let's continue in verse 9 now. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 9 to 10. For I, Paul, am the least of the apostles, and I am not fit to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But, by the grace of God, I am what I am, the apostle to the Gentiles. And his grace toward me, notice, did not prove vain. What does that mean? It means, again, that God gives grace for a purpose. That when God graced out Paul in the marvelous way he did, it was because he was going to be the instrument of the Lord for preaching the gospel to the Gentiles. He was graced out the way he was in order for the purpose that God had for his life. By the way, you're the same way. Don't think that it's just willy-nilly that God graced you out. He's got a purpose in mind for you. And that's exciting, actually. It's a reason to get up in the morning. Understanding that when we see God's grace at work, just remember that he has got a tremendous purpose for you. By the way, even more to the point, he's got a tremendous purpose for us, for the body as a whole. But the grace, by the grace of God, verse 10, I am what I am. His grace toward me did not prove vain, empty, useless. It was not that. But I labored. Notice the connection. What happens when we are graced out? We, are, we labor. We work. And it's not a work for salvation. It's not any merit that we accrue, but rather it's just carrying out what the grace of God is enabling us to do. I labored even more than all of them. Just like Paul said, I'm the abortion among all the other apostles. I'm the miscarriage. Yet, through the grace of God, I am the apostle to the Gentiles. And while I was, I was the worst persecutor, now I'm the greatest worker. I put everything, my heart and soul, into who God has made me to be. Because his grace will be fruitful in my life. 
And that, that's the same thing for us. I labored more, even more than all of them, all the other apostles, yet not I. What a tremendous transition there. Just when you think he might be starting to get into the place where he might boast, he just cuts it right off. He says, don't get the wrong idea. It's not I. It's not me. It's the grace of God with me. I love how it says with me. Because at that point, we're not talking about salvation. We're talking about children of God and carrying out the calling on our life. And it's a partnership. The grace of God with me. Okay, and that's a tremendous thing to understand. That's why I think about the purpose. Think about the calling. Think about that the grace of God accompanies you through this great life that God has called you to. The great destination that he has in mind. But we're, we're, we're at work. We're walking. Okay? And that's the picture I want you to have in your head. It's a perfect expression of the combination of God at work and us at work. A lot of people ask, well, when I, when I do things in the plan of God, am I doing it or is God? And the answer is yes, because it's both. It's both. Not like salvation. Salvation is all of God. Grace itself is all of God. You had nothing to do with it. Nothing about you forced God to bless you the way he has. However, with that blessing comes God's purpose for you. And we need to be thinking about that. So Paul is thinking about who he was. He was a miscarriage, a complete failure. Think about it. I want you to think about being Paul. The moment that Jesus Christ comes into his life, the moment he understands that the church that he's been persecuting, the church of Christ, the hatred he had for everything associated with the name of Jesus Christ, that now becomes the greatest burden that he could possibly imagine. Why? Because he finally realizes that the Lord God of Israel is the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he had to deal with that. He then saw his life as a complete failure. Whereas before, he was a proud Pharisee who saw his life as a complete success. But when he's, when he's accosted by the Lord, he has to see, you know, I've been a complete failure. I was destined for the trash heap of humanity. In fact, he'll use that word about his pre-salvation celebrity ship in the book of Philippians chapter 3. He calls it garbage. And when you see that, when he sees that, he understands that the only way he's going to go forward now, it's not by his reputation, it's not by his celebrity ship. It's not by being a Pharisee. It's clearly not by persecuting the church. It's got to be by the grace of God. Now, the fact that he was a persecutor of the church, which is why he's a complete failure, it meant that he was noticed the least of the apostles. Think about that. Think about the fact that we think of Paul today, right, as our apostle, apostle to the Gentiles, the one to whom, think about it, God revealed the most amazing mysteries that had never been known before, and yet, he was the worst Christian there ever was. He was the worst persecutor of the church. I want you to put those two together. They don't, there's no way, humanly speaking, they fit. And yet, that's what God has done through his grace. He had no right at all to hold the office of apostle. He didn't walk with Jesus. He wasn't present at his resurrection. He persecuted the church rather than building it. No right, if you could speak of it that way, to be called an apostle. And yes, he, yet he is. The Lord calls him one. In another letter, he would write that he was the least of all saints. So you picture, it's one thing to say, well, there's this group of men that have a special purpose, and I'm the least of them, you know, a handful, 15. By the way, it's not just the 11 that walk with Christ. If you go through the epistles, there are others who are called apostles. All right, because that word just means one called and sent with authority. 
Okay. But they did have to see the resurrected Lord. So a lot of them who were around before Paul then became, not a lot, but a few, like Barnabas, for example, is called an apostle. So not only that, though, he was the least of all saints. If you think about all the believers who've ever lived and you put them in 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 a line, at the very back would be Paul. The very back. He was the last in line among all believers who ever lived. Then in a third letter, he calls, he is called the chief of all sinners, as me as the foremost of all sinners. So not only is he the least among, he's the least among the human race. He's just covered everything. He says, I'm the least among the saints. I'm the foremost. I'm the chief of sinners. So I hope you see that that's like the depths of the depths. That that's the, there's no way anybody could be lower position, humanly speaking, in God's eyes than him. And yet, what happened? He became the greatest apostle, the apostle to the church, the one to whom the mysteries are revealed. But why was he called the chief of sinners and the least of all saints? Well, we know. We've seen that in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 9. He persecuted the church of God. And by the way, boy, did he ever. Please turn to Acts chapter 26, verse 9. We're going to read a little bit about his his career as a persecutor of the body of Christ as a church. Acts 26, starting in verse 9. Acts 26, starting in verse 9. The chief of all sinners, the least of all saints, the least of the apostles. Here's his career before he became a believer. Verse 9. So then I thought to myself that, notice this, I had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. In other words, he was not just caught up in something that a lot of other people were pushing him to do. It came from himself. He said, I have to do this. I have to do many things, not a couple, many things hostile. And notice what he said. He didn't even hear say to the the church of God. What did he say? To the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He hated the very name Jesus. And that's what drove him. That's why he had to do many things hostile to the body, to the church. And this is verse 10. This is just what I did in Jerusalem. Now, now listen, he's not pulling any punches. He's calling it the way it really was. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, many saints, prisons, plural. Picture this. Picture how much he had to strenuously go around to find all these Christians, wherever they might be, and get them locked up. He had received authority from the chief priests to do it, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. I made sure that they were not only imprisoned, but put to death. Why? Because he had to do many things hostile to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 11, notice this, I punished them often in all the synagogues. Again, picture it. See, I want you to, I want you to see the incredible um, parallel in the opposite direction. Between Paul, before he became a believer, and Paul, after he was called by the Lord. It's incredible. He was just as, as vigorous and energetic before. Only, rather than going to all the cities in the Roman Empire, he was going to all the synagogues. I want you to think about it. There's a lot of synagogues around. He was going to all of them to try to wipe out the Christians that might be there. Okay, I want you to get the picture. I punished them often in all the synagogues. Notice this. I tried to force them to blaspheme. I mean, I want you to think about today where we have um, Muslim extremists who are doing, by the way, the same thing. 
They're persecuting Christians. They're, putting them, they're locking them up in their prisons. You know, you hear all the time about these pastors in places like Iran and Pakistan and so forth who are being put in prison because they're Christians. And I even for, tried to force them to blaspheme. That's a favorite trick of the, of the Muslims today. They'll say, listen, I'll let you, not just the Muslims, by the way, the communists did the same thing. I will let you out of prison if you blaspheme the name of Jesus. If you say, I'm turning my back on him. I'm no longer a follower of Jesus. I'm going to embrace your religion. That's what Paul is saying. Turn your back on Jesus. Go back to Judaism. Okay, but of course we know they didn't. All right? We know we see that as an illustration in the life of Peter, the life of Paul and Barnabas, so many others who were in prison and said, I am not going to blaspheme the, the great name of Jesus Christ. But here, I want you to see also at the end of verse 11, and being furiously enraged at them. So in other words, he took this personal. He took the, mo- the, the strongest negative emotion, hatred, and he, he was furiously engaged in that. He, that's what motivated him. Okay, Later on, as a Christian, what will motivate him is the grace of God. As a, as a one who persecuted the church, what motivated him was the hatred of Jesus Christ. What an amazing, amazing turnaround. Now, and he wasn't satisfied with just doing what he was doing in Jerusalem. He even went to foreign cities. We know he was on his way to Damascus when he had the great encounter with the Lord. I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. Again, think about the parallel. See, he already had a career, okay, going to synagogues and going to foreign cities. Only at first he was doing it to persecute and kill Christians. Later on, he'll do the same thing. He'll go to synagogues. That's where he always started when he went to the new city. He'd go to synagogues now as the apostle of the Gentiles. And then he's motivated by love rather than by hatred. And he's going to preach the gospel to them rather than persecute them. Okay. He pursued the saints and locked them up in prison and saw to it that they were put to death. He was relentless in his pursuit, even going to foreign cities, punishing them in all the synagogues, trying to force them to blaspheme. His rage, his hatred for all things associated with the name of Jesus knew no bounds. That's why he was the worst sinner who ever lived. He put everything into carrying out the full hatred that he could muster up for the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, and yet, Christ picked him. Christ picked him. Christ saved him. Christ gave him, the worst persecutor, the worst of all saints, the the chief of sinners, gave him, Paul, a unique and glorious mission. Think of it. That's the picture of the turnaround that the grace of God can can produce. He, He gave a mission, and notice this, that only the chief of sinners was fit to fulfill. Why? Because he was so low and so disgusted with his flesh. You know, he would say in chapter 7 of the book of Romans, I am a wretched person in my own flesh. That's the one who's going to be a powerful witness of the gospel. That one. That's the one who will be motivated now by love to go out and preach the gospel to the Gentiles because he saw how much hatred he had in his heart before, and he saw how wicked that was, and it motivated, it propelled him to go in the opposite direction. Jesus knew that was going to happen. That's why he picked him. Only the chief of sinners could be picked to be the greatest apostle, the apostle to the Gentiles. Don't miss that. Why? Because he was going to a place where there were a lot of sinners. (laughs) 
And, then, and therefore, he, he had to be sustained and motivated and loving them. And Why? Because he was the worst one. He knew that whatever he was going to encounter, he was worse than that especially on the inside. They may have been, a lot of people today, you know, they're indifferent to the Lord, but only a few hate him. They're out there. You know, there's atheists who may not believe there's a God. Then there's what they're called anti-theists. Or like John says in his letter, many antichrists. Now, not the beast in Revelation, but those who hate Christ, okay? He was the worst among all of them who ever lived. And yet Christ picked him. A mission gave him. Only the chief of sinners could carry it out. All right, let's continue in Acts now, 26, same place you are. Let's start in verse 12. Let's read about the other side of the coin. From the poorest persecutor to what he would then become. Notice verse 12. While I was well, so engaged, so engaged with what? Pursuing them in foreign cities, the church, the body. As I was journeying to Damascus with the authority and commission of the high priest, boy, did he feel high on the hog. Boy, did he feel like he was doing the greatest possible thing. You see, he was on a mission, all right, but a mission of destruction and hatred. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. The sun is never brighter than at midday, and yet the light that he saw now is brighter than the sun in the top of the sky, shining all around me and those who were journeying with me. He had cohorts, apparently. And then when we had all fallen to the ground, that's the power of what he saw. I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect. I love that. It was, he, he spoke words and language that Paul could understand. Saul at this time. When we had all fallen to the ground, verse 14, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? He knew who he was persecuting. But now he realizes that the Lord in heaven is Jesus Christ. And he's been pursuing the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob he's been pursuing. Okay, if you're a Pharisee and you come to that realization, trust me, like Job, you're going to rue the day you're ever born that I was that horrible, that I really have that uh, as my track record. But notice the next word. Remember, word but is always a great word when something's negative has just been said. But God... What does he say? He says, but get up. You know, get up. I know you're falling apart right now. Get up. Stand on your feet. He'll say that to us too. When we have a great failure, when people all around us are putting us down, and we feel like, you know, like, uh, who was that boxer who said no moss? You know, I'm staying in my corner. I'm not getting out there in the fight anymore. You know, we feel like failure. But what does he say? Get up. Stand on your feet. Why? Notice. For this purpose. The grace of God is for a purpose. Look at Paul. For this purpose the Lord appeared to him. What was the purpose? To appoint you a minister and a witness, not only to the things which you've seen, but also the things to which I will appear to you. He's saying, look, you saw me today. All right, I transformed your life. Here I am, the resurrected Christ. I've got a great mission for you. It's going to be a mission to go to the Gentiles. I'm going to appear to you again. I'm going to strengthen you again. I'm going to reveal things to you that have never been revealed before. This is the greatness of the grace of God. Paul knew darn well that he was the last person that he would even come up with to receive this from the Lord Jesus Christ. Become a minister, a witness. Things that he will then 
receive when, he, when Jesus appears to him again. I'm coming back to see you, Paul. Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles. There'll be a lot of haters out there. You used to be one. Now you're going to be meeting haters like you used to be when you get out there. When you preach the name of Christ. Okay? I'll have to rescue you from a lot of Jewish people and even Gentiles. They'll be upset in Ephesus to the point of rage because he was saying that they didn't need that God that they were worshiping in the temple anymore. A lot of people lost their livelihood, by the way, because they were making all kinds of things. Okay? Rescuing you from the Jewish people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you. Paul's saying, wow. He's got, he really knows how to get at you. Not only is he saying that as a Jew and Pharisee, you persecuted me. But now what I'm going to do is I'm going to send you to the dogs. I'm going to send you to the ones that the Jewish people hate. Rescuing to open their eyes. So that they may turn from darkness to light. There's the grace of God at work in those people. From the dominion of Satan to God. I can't think of a greater transformation than being from the dominion of Satan to God. In other words, the same grace that was showered on Saul is being going to be showered on all the people who believe in the gospel message. So that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. Grace. By grace through faith. What could possibly explain why the Lord picked Saul of Tarsus? I want you to see it in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Please go to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. When he writes to Timothy, he tells him exactly what happened. He explains why he was picked. And how the Lord worked on him. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. Paul writes to Timothy, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who has strengthened me. What does the grace of God do? Strengthens us. Why? Just so that we can flex our spiritual muscles? No, because of a purpose. Notice, he, is considered, he considered me faithful, putting me into service. When you're faithful, when, you, when the grace of God is not given to you in vain, what's the Lord going to do? He's going to put you into service. There's a purpose. Even though, notice, I was formerly, we all have a formerly, all right? All have places that we're not proud of that we've been and done. I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. We've seen all that. Yet, I was shown mercy. If, if Saul could be shown mercy, anybody could be shown mercy. Because I acted ignorantly. In unbelief, never forget that. The people that you're preaching to that reject the gospel, they're ignorant of the things of God. They, were, they are staying in unbelief. They're capable of all kinds of things when they are in that status. Verse 14, now we see. And the grace of our Lord was what? More than abundant. Super abundant. Oh, rich to the point of... Rich, 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 rich. More than abundant with the faith and love which are found only in Christ Jesus. No more hatred, faith and love. 15. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. In other words, he's putting a big spotlight on what he's about to say. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save the people that are pretty good the ones that have already gotten a lot of work done to become righteous themselves. No. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He, who, who does Christ Jesus come? Why did he come into the world to save who? Sinners. 
Sinners, among whom Paul says, I'm the foremost of all. I'm the chief of sinners. Now, if you can't get comfortable with the message that he's going to give, what he reveals to you, he's the chief of sinners. You're thinking today, you know what? I have no business being saved by the Lord. Do you know who I am? It's like Peter, when he first realized that Jesus was the Son of God, he says, get away from me, for I am a wicked man. That's the way, when we're being honest, we see our, ra- our depravity for what it is. That's where we get to. Paul got there. He says, I'm the chief of sinners. Yet notice, for this reason. What reason? Because I'm the foremost of all. He came to save me. I found mercy so that it is me as the foremost. See that? As the foremost. As the one least likely, humanly speaking, to be saved. He says, as in me, the mercy and the grace salvation. Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. He's patient. We should be patient. I know in these times, we have, a, and we should, we have a lot of a sense of urgency, and that's fine for us. But when we're dealing with unbelievers, we've got to have patience. A lot of people... <laughs> A lot of people go to a certain place and they meet somebody in the mall and they give them the gospel and then the person doesn't believe and they turn around and say, well, I guess you're going to hell. Not Jesus. Perfect patience taught all sinners. Why? Because he's the example. He's the example for everyone that would come to believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life. And I love verse 17. A hymn of praise. He understands what it's all about how he's become the apostle, how he's given this message, how he's received the perfect patience, now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That is the ultimate purpose. The ultimate purpose is to do what Saul did when he became Paul the apostle, to give honor and glory forever and ever to the Lord. Put it another way, Saul of Tarsus would become the poster child for the grace of God. The poster child. The the greatest illustration of what the grace of God can do. Please turn to Mark chapter 2, verse 16. Mark chapter 2, verse 16. Jesus dealt with this. Who has he come? Who has he come to call? Who did he die for? Well, we know the answer to that. Christ came into the world to save sinners. But notice how Jesus discusses this in a way only he could. In in, in confronting the legalistic, the self-righteous. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he, Jesus, was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors. But but who did Jesus come for? Did he come for the arrogant Pharisee? Now don't get me wrong, he died for them. But they weren't ready. Maybe they never would be ready to believe in him, okay? When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and the tax collectors, they said to his disciples, cowards that they were, they didn't go to Jesus, all right? They already seen that he's can, he can handle them and whip them. No, they went to the disciples, see if they can peel off a couple of them. Why is he eating and drinking with tax collectors and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, to the proud, to the self-righteous, to the mighty, to the ones that put themselves on a pedestal. It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. When we meet somebody who understands that they're a sick sinner, 
that they're sick of heart, sick in the mind. That's who Jesus came for. He says, listen, I'm the great physician. I didn't come for the so-called healthy. I came for those who are sick. We're all sick, but he came, for, he came specifically for those who were ready to admit it. Okay, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, therefore, if he came to call sinners, and Paul tells me that he was the chief of sinners, what does that mean? Christ saved him, he can certainly save me. That's, that's why the Lord Jesus Christ picked him. Because after all, Christ didn't die for the, for the godly, he died for the ungodly. He died for liars and murderers and thieves and the proud, the blasphemers, the haters of good, the very people that all too many Christians condemn out of hand. He came for them. He died, he died for everybody, but he came particularly to, to give the good news to those who thought they could never be right with God. Please turn to Romans 4.5. Romans 4.5. I want you to see uh, in black and white that it's ungodly people, ungodly people that the Lord justifies. Only them. Only them. In other words, we were saved as ungodly. We weren't saved because we were on our way to being a great Christian or anything like that. We were saved because we were ungodly. Because we were. Just like Paul said, for this reason that I was the chief of sinners, I was the one that he picked. Look at Romans 4, 5. But to the one who does not work, but simply believes in him, who justifies who? The ungodly. He justifies the ungodly. This puts the lie to the Calvinist belief that he picks people and he, and he regenerates them. And then he, then he justifies them. What a, what a bunch of baloney. Because then they would be godly, right? If he regenerates them first, they're godly. They have the life of God in them. No, he justifies the ungodly. Before he does all the other stuff. His faith is credited as righteousness by grace through faith, not of works. Lest any man should boast. You see, he justifies the ungodly, declares them to be righteous on the basis of their faith, not their turnaround, not their works, okay, not their act of contrition, none of that. Not because they were baptized, okay, with water, no, because of their faith. Their faith is credited as righteousness. So Christ died for the ungodly, and by the way, sinners, notice this, are the only people he saves. Now you might say, understanding that everybody's a sinner, we might say, obviously that's, that's true. But you've got to keep in mind that who you're dealing with when you're preaching the gospel. You see, there are people out there who don't think they're sinners. They've never thought that they were a sinner. They've always thought that they were better than everybody else. It's people who can't accept they were born ungodly and unrighteous. That's the people. That's the humanists out there. Everybody who says, oh, you're born good. And then society corrupts you. What a bunch of nonsense. So a person who never saw themselves as being born ungodly and unrighteous, well, if that's you, apparently Christ didn't come to call you. Why? Because you think you don't need to be justified. What's the point of having a Savior if you can justify yourself? You see, God's grace comes into view. Now, it's there, but it comes into view in the life of a person when we despair of ever being able to justify ourselves. 
Let me say that again. God's grace comes into view like it came into view for Saul of Tarsus when he was, when that light brighter than the sun came upon him. And he saw clearly for the first time who he was. When we despair of ever being able to justify ourselves, that's when God's grace comes into view. So whether we realize it or not, when we understand the implications of really being a sinner, of being in rebellion against God, we despair of ever being able to justify ourselves. And we become people like that publican that said, Lord, have mercy on me, the sinner. That's the place of humility. That's the place of grace. Not the Pharisee who was saying, I pay tithes on all I make. I fast once a week. No, not that one. So when you agree with the Lord's words that nothing good dwells in your flesh, that you're not righteous in and of yourself, that in fact you're ungodly, a miscarriage, then the grace of God will be to your soul as springs of water to a thirsty deer. When you picture that. Needs water so desperately that the only thing that he's seeking out now is the water. The only thing that an unbeliever, or even a believer at times, okay? Because we still have needs. We're still at fault. When you realize it, you're seeking the grace of God as springs of life-giving water. Let's go back to verse 10 of chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10. And we'll finish up. 1 Corinthians 15, 10. This is our subject today. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I want you to say that to yourself. Particularly when you start to get a little puffed up about all you've accomplished in your Christian life. About all the souls you've saved, perhaps. About all the places you've been. All of the churches you've built. All of this. All of that. Realize that it's only by the grace of God that you are who you are. And His grace toward me, notice, did not prove vain. It's a, it's, a, it's a cause, okay, of what? Laboring even more than all of them. Not because you want to be proud of your accomplishments, but exactly the opposite. Because you know you're nothing without Christ, and yet you've been empowered by Christ, and you want to use that. You want to put that grace to use to, to, for His glory. Not I, but the grace of God with me. So at the, at the very end today, let's take a little time to just be in awe, once again, of the abundant grace of God. Think of Paul. Think of what he was saying. He said, listen, the last thing I had any business being was an apostle of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when he appeared to me on that road to Damascus, he should have killed me. He should have killed me. I was his mortal enemy. But here I am, his chosen apostle. I persecuted Christians. I put them to death. Not only that, but I was cruel and vicious and hateful and vindictive about it. That was what's in my heart. Jesus knew it. But now I work harder than all the other apostles put together for the cause of Christ. He poured out his grace upon me. And from that day on, Paul thought, I have never stopped striving for the cause of his gospel with every ounce of my being and all my strength. And only God's grace can explain any of that. By the way, just like only God's grace can explain how any of us got saved. Only God's grace. We were ungodly. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead. Only God's grace 
can explain how any of us got saved. Okay? You want to say, well, I believed. Yeah, but that's not why you were saved. <laughs> that was God's channel. Okay? That, because you had to be a person who was pushed away anything about you and the only thing that was left to believe in what God's doing. Okay? It's only by grace that we can, can be explained how any of us got saved. Okay, that's back then for us who were saved. But now, only God's grace can explain how we've grown, how we've changed, how we've grown to become more like Christ. Only God's grace. Don't give yourself credit for that. Don't say, well, you know, I've been studying the Bible every day for 30 years, and that's why I've grown. Well, that's good, but that's not why you've grown. Paul says in chapter 3, we saw this, you know, I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. God's the only one who can. The grace of God is the only explanation how we grow to become more like Christ. God's blessings pour down on helpless, weak people. He looked beyond our depravity and our faults and he saw our needs. That's what his eye is on. Remember, he's overlooking our sins. He's not counting our trespasses against us. What he's looking at is our needs. All right, we're going to wrap up. Go to, please go to quickly to Titus chapter 3, verse 3. Titus 3, 3. For we also once were foolish ourselves, all of us, none righteous, not even one. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. We also once were foolish ourselves. We were disobedient. We all were. We were deceived, acting ignorantly. We were enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, plural, spending our life like Paul did in malice and evil and envy, hating hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior, here comes grace, and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we've done in righteousness, but only according to His mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, all gifts now, whom He poured out upon us richly, the gift of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ our Savior. Okay, We've been justified now by His grace through faith. That's our salvation. But then He goes on. So that being justified by His grace, we would be made, here's the purpose, heirs according to the hope of eternal life. He met our need for salvation. Now He meets our needs every day. He continues. We're unable. We have inability. We're weak. But He continues to meet our inability with His abundance. It's all by grace. It's all by grace. Now remember, grace means gifts freely given for a great purpose. For a great purpose. The grace of God propels us forward towards God's purpose and calling for us. Okay, you're in Titus, so just go back to chapter 2 as we close. Titus chapter 2, 11 to 14. For the grace of God has appeared appeared out of nowhere. Nothing about us. We weren't fasting and all of that and then, oh, we earned it. No, it just appeared. Bringing salvation to all men. Speaking of the Calvinists, how do they explain that, by the way? See, he was bringing salvation to all men. Instructing us after that to do what? Deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, 
righteously, and godly in the present age. Why? Because we have grace for purpose, to glorify the Lord. Notice now, he's also propelling us forward. He's, I'm pulling you forward. I'm pouring grace, and I'm pulling you forward, looking for the blessed hope, the rapture, and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus. Now, he gave himself for us for purpose, to redeem us from every lawless deed. That's part of his purpose. And to purify for himself a people for his own possession. He says, I'm going to bring a people together for my own possession. My, my uh, family, the members of the body of Christ, the fullness of Christ in this world. That's why I'm purifying you. I want you to be zealous for good deeds. Because people will look at that and understand that God is at work. They know that the, that the nature of man is not to be zealous for good deeds for others. It's to be selfish. So those who are consistently zealous for good deeds, I want to help people, I want to exercise my gift, glorifies God. God's grace is for a purpose. That we would be made heirs of eternal life. That we would become a people for his own possession. That we would become zealous for good deeds. All right, one more scripture. Ephesians 2, 4. And then I'll say I'll let you go, but there's, there's only a couple of people here to let go. So we're going to wrap up. Ephesians 2, 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love, never forget the motivation here, his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive, together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Not only that, here comes more of His grace. He made us alive when we were dead. He raised us up with Him. God raised us up with Him. Just like He raised His Son. And not only that, but He's now seated us with God Himself in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now that's a grace gift. Nobody earns or deserves that. And we would never consider that as being one of the things that God would do. Even after we understand that Christ died for our sins. Only God would come up with that and of course have the power to bring it about. He seated us with himself in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Why? Purpose. Why would he do all of that? He didn't have to. Here's the purpose. Notice the purpose. So that in the ages to come, at the time of the rapture, at the time of the millennial kingdom, for all of eternity, in the, in the, in the new heavens, the new Jerusalem, in the ages to come, he might continue to show what? the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. I hope you got today the extent, the magnitude, the fullness of all of his grace blessings for us, the body of Christ now. So the point is real simple. His ultimate purpose for us is the exact same as his ultimate purpose for Paul, to be a trophy of grace to people he says, I'm going to get a people and I'm going to shower my grace on them. Why? So that all creation may know God's genius. That all creation, all creatures, human, angelic, would know God's love. Would know the power of his righteousness. The power of his glory. That's our ultimate purpose. Well, sure, we have callings in this life. We have spiritual gifts. And that's all, that is all, but that's all for the purpose And that's all for the ultimate purpose, so that he would grace us out, such that all creation will know, all creatures, all humans, 
The angels. The angels are looking at us. Principalities and powers. They'll all know the genius of the Lord. They'll all know how much love he has. They'll all know his perfect righteousness. They'll all know his power who can take the dead and bring them to life. Can take haters and make them lovers. The power of God, ultimately the glory of God. That's our purpose. All right, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for us all being together in different ways. We're all, we're all spiritually together. Paul would say, I can't be with you physically, but I'm with you in, my, in spirit. You say that to the Philippians, I believe. We thank you for that, Lord. We also thank you for all your grace as we've been getting through this very difficult time. We also thank you for your grace in allowing us to open once again for our congregation to be together six feet apart once again. We thank you, Father, for all that you're doing to heal, all that you're doing to hopefully strengthen our country again, bring us together rather than break us apart. We thank you for every grace gift, especially the death of your son and his resurrection. We ask this all in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. All right. Next Sunday we open up. Precautions will be taken for the virus. This Thursday we'll have Bible study virtually again. If you don't have a link, please email Mark, M-A-R-C, at lbible.org. Remember our giving policy. We don't tithe. We don't, you know, have people signing up for different amounts. Okay? It's all we've been talking about today, all grace. You've been blessed financially in grace. You give in grace for a purpose. God blesses us financially, yes, so that we can have great life, take care of our needs first, but then that we may glorify Him by imitating Him. Okay? So whenever somebody is motivated to support the gospel, the preaching of God's word, the people of God, then it's our privilege to joyously give. Don't miss out on the things that come to us when we exercise that direction, when we give freely. All right, you can, um, you can donate online, okay? And you can also mail, by mail, the old-fashioned way. That's our address, Lighthouse Bible Church, 4213 North Federal Highway, Pompano Beach, Florida, 33064. Again, if uh, today, and any time, if you've got questions, about the gospel, about the message today, or anything, I invite you to send me an email. That's perfectly healthy. Right? No one's going to get COVID-19 from the email system. You can ask the question, and I'll do my best to answer it. Remember the gospel. Remember the good news. Those of you who may be hearing this message today and don't know about the good news, don't know about who Christ is or what he's already done for you, Please know that Christ died for your sins, our sins, all of us, because we're all sinners. He was buried. We know he died because he was buried. He was literally buried. He was raised from the dead on the third day by his Father. He appeared to many witnesses. This is a fact. And what he wants to do now is to have you believe that good news. That's it. He's not asking you to perform a work. He's not asking you to grovel on your knees or to have to come to church for two months or any of that. Just believe the good news that Christ died for you and he's been raised from the dead and he's at the right hand of the Father and he's full of love, mercy, and patience for you and everybody. All right, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you today for once again all the things. We thank you, Father, that we've now understood better your grace and also that you have a purpose for it and that we're involved in that 
in whatever way you've seen fit for us to glorify you. We also, Father, thank you for the simplicity of the gospel. And we just want to ask now, Father, that your hand would be upon all our members of our congregation, all members of the body of Christ especially, and for our broken, depressed world. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Just a couple of reminders. Again, Bible study this Thursday, May 28th, 6.30. Okay, we're going a half hour earlier than we used to when we met here. 6.30 on Skype. Again, if you need the link, you can just email Mark at lbible.org. If you've got questions, you can email me, pastor at lbible.org. Okay. All right, with that, you are dismissed virtually, or those who are here, and uh, hope you can make the best of the today and every day. Remember, every day is a gift from God. I understand that more now than ever. So let us rejoice in today. Let us be glad in today. Okay, you're dismissed. Well, we'll see uh, those who can make it on Thursday. And remember, we are gathering together face-to-face next Sunday. All right. Goodbye.